Here's a news flash. Surprise, surprise. Well, look at you. The whole world is watching for my next move. Oh my God. Times have changed. There are no rules. You're gonna love it. Hey, and welcome to Skip Intro, the podcast from Binge, all about the world's best television. Each week, we're here to discuss the biggest new shows on Binge, but at the moment, we are talking all things House of the Dragon. My name is John Boehm, here with Ali Herbert Burns, and together we look after all the great TV and movies that you see on Binge. Ali, we are talking about House of the Dragon, but we've got a few other things to discuss as well. What's what's happening today? John, we're going to dissect episode seven, if you can believe we're already up to episode seven, House of the Dragon. Then we've got a new BBC drama called The Control Room, which has landed on binge that we're going to talk about. It's a really punchy three-episode, really bingeable series, so I can't wait to talk to you about that one set in Scotland. And then we've got our dinner party recommendations, those shows or movies deep from the vault or things that we love on binge that we tell our friends to watch. Let's get stuck into this explosive episode of House of the Dragon. Rhaenyra, no queen has ever sat the Iron Front. The road ahead is uncertain, but the end is clear. Someone stole Rhaegar. Fire is such strange power. Everything that House Targaryen possesses is over to it. Okay, Ali, episode seven is now streaming on Binge. I have to admit, when I'm watching House of the Dragon in, you know, preparation for our little chats, I'm often like taking notes or like flying backwards and forwards to make sure I haven't missed things. This episode, I was transfixed. Like this is, I would say this is the most engrossing episode this series for a number of reasons, but also some of the scenes are, I know we've had like some next level fights and some next level like dragon flying, but there are some moments in this episode that just like actually blew me away. I'm with you. So in each episode, we've kind of gone, oh, this is the war episode, or there's always something that kind of brings it. I felt like this was almost the Shakespearean episode. Some of the lines that were said, searingly poignant, uh, things that you'd heard in the, in the original promo trailer and you finally saw them landed and just these big hanging moments about what this show is all about, but it is cinematography. There's a darkness and a an element of loom that hangs over it and just a wow, powerful, powerful episode and a lot that happens and a lot that both you and I are like, did I get that right? Should we talk about it? So I'm assuming people at home listening might have had the same, like, what did I just see or didn't see or missed? Yeah. What do you, how do you want to start? We- yeah. Well, I, like I had not thought about it, but Shakespearean is a great reference because we'll get to it in a second, but there is a scene that like almost feels like a play, almost the entire cast all sort of in one set, basically throwing knives at each other and tearing themselves apart. And it's a fantastic scene. But anyway, plot wise, This is probably the shortest jump we've had between episodes, I would think. Um, We've had months and years jump between episodes. This episode basically feels like it's the next day from episode six. So as you remember, episode six did see the death of Lena Valerian. And this begins, this opens with her funeral. But this episode is really all about the kids and the kids that are now much older, thanks to the time jump, and the kids who are becoming... Um, a bit self-aware. They're, they're starting to understand the family dynamics. They're starting to understand the like politics at play. And yeah, we very quickly see the kids and the whole family start to 
start to tear themselves apart. Mm-hmm. But to get to the Shakespearean moment, one of the key scenes in this is the dragon flying scene where it, this might sound uh, like I'm diminishing it, but like it felt like a Star Wars or a Marvel or like a Harry Potter. Like there's the scene where the kid um, of Alicent and the king, Amond, goes and steals a dragon and goes for this absolutely incredible moonlit ride. It's unlike any scene we've seen so far on House of the Dragon that then leads to the kid's basically tearing themselves apart, questioning each other's legitimacy. Amond, our friend Amond, the child. Dragon stealer. Dragon stealer, who people might know as One Eye. Uh, we we um, we find out why he, why he was called One Eye in the book. Yeah, um, so let's just, just jump on a couple of things on that. So this is called House of the Dragon. In episode six, you might remember we were talking with Sam about what was at risk for Alicent as the queen and her children and Princess Renee's children, and it was a little bit subtle about what was at risk. It was like this fear, but this is the episode where you see the reality of a family all put together, all responding to death in different ways, bratty kind of kids, the subtlety that's kind of been hanging behind all the episodes so far because, like as you said so well, John, with the kids kind of coming of age, you see the reality of what has to play out. You can't necessarily control your children. They're going to have, you know, their own responses and that's what you see here. We see Amond steal the dragon and, and what I learned is that the first person, so if the owner of the dragon or the commander of the dragon dies, clearly the next person that commands them can kind of claim them. So he, you might remember a few episodes again, he didn't have a dragon egg growing up so he's always been without that power. He was given the pig in that scene, I think, in episode four. So he kind of used this opportunity with great bravery and, and really quite a lot of kind of political nous to claim this dragon in a very scary way. This young boy stares down this dragon and, as you say, just the most amazing scene as he effectively goes on a joyride, dipping into the water, going up and down. And you can just, I mean, I don't know how he didn't fall off properly, but unbelievable scene. But then what happens off the back of that is Linnea Valerian's children, she's, they've just put her to rest that day. They've had her funeral that day and her two daughters look out the window and see their mother's dragon fly off and who's on him, who's on him. And in response to that, this fight breaks out, doesn't it? And the children, as I said, they can't be controlled anymore. They are hearing and feeling and, and experiencing the tensions in this family. And you have a prince fighting a prince, a prince and a princess kind of going at it. And um, someone loses an eye, someone gains a dragon, um, but doesn't it bring the politics of the court to a heightened point? And how brilliant is it shot? Like the scene yeah. after the knifing when they're all in the king's main room fighting and just you could see how it was shot. There were circles, there were sides, there were people standing back and watching, there was power playing out through the room. There's lots of like gazing of eyes and like checking who's on whose side. It could have and- been season one of Succession when they go away to that retreat yeah. and they're all around the <laughs> table going, who's the power? Like you could just the way that was so heavy and brilliantly played, like it. Yeah, and and so for me, when I said it felt Shakespearean, I just there were also just some amazing lines, you know. And this is all to do with succession and um, and the family bloodline. I think one of my favourite ones is, "What is this brief mortal life if not the pursuit of legacy?" I mean, it just you know it sounds like it's come out of a Shakespearean play, but then it's also what's all this about? And this idea of the illegitimacy of the children really comes starts to come home to roost. You cannot ignore this theme and this story that's been bubbling away for six episodes. It's loud and clear here, isn't it, in episode seven? It's it's um, a brilliantly crafted episode. Yeah. And as we see in real life, when a couple of kids have a, have a bit of a tussle, the parents then sort of tear them apart and try to figure out what's happening. And we then basically lead to 
the sort of showdown that I feel like, you know, Sam and JMO and people that we've had on the podcast before have always been saying, don't forget the Alison Rhaenyra relationship. Like it's at the core of the show. And this episode is the episode where it absolutely gets to like literally the core of the show with Alison sort of staring down Rhaenyra with each other's kids by their side and like knives in hand, mm. just an incredibly dramatic scene. So does that, that almost bring, isn't, isn't that the poetry in that it takes a threat to their children. It takes violence that's just occurred between their two sons to bring the violence between them to a crescendo as well. Alison has been so contained in how she's kept this together. And she is, I don't want to even say unhinged, but she is. She's, she's ready to kill. She, like literally I, yeah, she ready could to have kill. killed her, couldn't she? So, you know, yeah. you can imagine the simmering frustration of 20 years. She's just been shot down and overridden once or twice by the king. He doesn't support her. He says, this is how we're settling it. And the queen overrides him and calls on Sir Kristen, her knight, to exact her revenge. And in front of everybody, I mean, I mean, there's yeah. just so many people that are weakened by that play. But how interesting at the end of that, Circle dance, like I said, Damon holds back Sir Kristen. It's uh, these women. Do they let it play out? Does the hand let it play out? Because it's ultimately weakening the king. But then at the end of it, Damon's standing on one side of the circle and you see this new casting of, of where the family is separated, don't you? It's just... Um, yeah, it's really like it feels like the pulling off of the Band-Aid because for the like, you know, the last six episodes, there's been a sort of obviously tension, but a still like a civility and that they were kind of dancing around a lot of the problems that they're having with with succession and with the legitimacy of children, it kind of felt like everyone was just letting it simmer but not address it. And this is the episode where things get addressed and it's just done so well. It's just, it's an amazing scene. It's so amazing. I mean, I know you said you were engrossed, but I I also wrote like three or four pages of notes when I was reading, watching this. I just was like... And it's purposely dark and moody. I mean, a bit, a bit like a Shakespearean play again. It's like the weather and the sounds, the music, you know, or like a horror film, the way it helps you know what's coming, this sense of like gloom and death and change. You can sense the king is coming to an end, can't you? Like didn't you just feel like when they when they when the yeah. episode started and they were having this again quite beautifully designed funeral at the at the edge of the water, I was like, who's died? Is it the king? I had a moment where I was like, is the king gone? Yeah. And then he obviously saw, you know, the, the tomb and everything was in the shape of a woman. But I was like, he's not well, is he? No. You said this very briefly at the start, but raise it again because it's just one of my favourite things. We've obviously, like, seen this trailer coming for a long time and we've seen different iterations of it. But, like, one of my favourite things is to finally see, like, these dramatic moments and lines from the trailer actually play out in the show and there's a couple of those moments in this season where you're like oh i know that bit like finally like, finally yeah, there's another one when they like, say that but now they see you as you are i think was on yeah the it's yeah. just <laughs> i love it i love it when that finally happens but just to mark this episode felt like a master class of writing and directing and cinematography i mean this is yeah, I keep saying episode six I was like it's my favorite like there was just again each one's got something else to it but this one was it felt like a masterclass episode and so much kind of started to happen and, and how it finished was extreme. Another thing is, and I don't know if it's the way this one was shot and it was, you know, purposefully gloomy, but they don't seem to be having a lot of fun. Like, you know, that first episode before Queen Emma died, you had that, you know, they were having the big festival and it felt like, you know, it was light and there was, but this, it, it feels very heavy. Um, and one of the sons says something brilliantly, doesn't it? I think it's Joffrey or one of Renea's sons who's like, if I'm inheriting that, I don't want that. That means everyone's died. It's a sense of like 
death amongst them. Yeah, I think a lot of the gloss is off because they got away with 10 years of raising kids and sort of being nice to each other. And now it feels like everything is real and everything is happening. And I don't think we're going to slow down over the next over the next few episodes. Yeah, it's like they're out of time. Like the king can't yes. hang on much longer. Yeah, so cannot wait for episode eight, but we do have 10, 10 episodes in total. So we've still got a bit more to go, but... Who knows where it is heading. So, John, I think the water cooler stuff this week will be, you know, the final change in family dynamics. What was really going on with Leonor? Like, was he really dead? That murder scene or... And also, I think just the dragonfly mm. scene is incredible. And the kids fighting. It's just, again, it's rare to see children get so violent with each other on television. So, um, yes, a lot happened with this episode. I think there's going to be a lot of discussion around it. And, yeah, I can't wait to hear what everyone else thinks. But House of the Dragon episode, episode seven is streaming right now on Binge and new episodes are still dropping weekly every Monday, but they are now at noon Australian Eastern Daylight Time, thanks to a, a few time changes. And of course, every episode of Game of Thrones is also streaming for you right now. We play an ugly game. You have the determination to win it. There is a debt to be paid. The new three-part British thriller, The Control Room, follows an emergency call operator drawn into a mysterious crime when he's recognised by a distressed woman who calls in to report a death. From the producers of Dracula and Sherlock, this new BBC series has been called the thriller of the year by the UK press. I'm going to watch it. She's the patient breathing. Dead. I've killed him. What's your name? I'm not going to tell you that. Give us your exact location. We might still be able to do something. Oh, my God. Gable, is that you? Do I know you? We talked about this ages ago, but I'm sure our listeners will remember <laughs> <laughs> the movie Kimmy. Yes. And not just because there's a bit of that, like yeah. over, overhearing a crime, but also just that idea of like getting drawn into something and like each new door that you open, like reveals a new twist or a new mystery or like the stakes get higher and higher. So it's like, it's a, it's a beautifully simple premise in that it's this, in Australia, we call it like triple zero, but like a, tri- like, you know, an emergency triple zero guy answers a phone call from a woman who's maybe murdered someone or someone's died. And then the woman goes like, Oh, I know, like, I know you. I've, like, I recognize your voice. And he calls her, uh, the character's name is Gabriel, but the woman on the phone calls him Gabo because it's like a, like a nickname for him. Because he likes Great Australian Bake Off. Gabo. Yes, obviously. (laughs) Um, um, And then twist after twist after twist, like involving his dad and his family and a body. And yeah, it's just, it's very compelling. It it is only this like three hour, three episode thing, but they cram so much into it that it's just like nonstop. Yeah. So a couple of things. So what I liked about it is I think when you do flashbacks in television and film, it can be a little bit like, oh, how are you doing this? But they effectively, you've got a character who works in a control room and a triple O room. And then he, he takes this call, there's a, some kind of crime, but the person on the line is an old friend, someone he hasn't seen for a long time and something happened in their youth. So they're deeply kind of bound and connected to each other. And it very much then from there, it starts flashing back. You have to pay attention, put your phone down, flashing back, flashing forward, flashing back. But I think that's probably where the critical acclaims come because it is done very well. This comes to us from the producers of Sherlock, um, Hartswood. So, you know, great, great 
credit and, and kudos behind who's who's behind this series. This very, again, it's kind of this thing of what happens when good people get pulled into bad situations and then the kind of judgment that they make. The stuff you kind of do, like the bad stuff you might do to try to do the right thing. Like there's a lot of like morality and like questioning, like, oh, do I commit another crime to try to Cover fix up this the other first one crime? And, and, yeah, especially yeah. when it's a good person pulled into a bad situation and they're not used to having shades of bad. They're just a good person so that everything just is upon them. Um, and also the influences of people in your life, family or friends, people that maybe don't bring out your best, but then you're bound to them or tied to them in a way that you sometimes are in families or with, with people that control your heart or, or you know, there's a, clearly a, a history going on between these characters. So, yeah, just an interesting show. I was surprised that it went out in UK summer. I feel like it maybe got a little bit lost in the kind of summertime you know, English schedule because holidaying. Yeah. yeah. I actually, um, I did read that it was, that there almost was a surprise around its scheduling because they were like, it's too good to, to like be buried in someone. Yeah, they call it the so, summer graveyard sometimes, don't they? But yeah, um, I did read one article that said that the guy who wrote it, Nick Leather, his inspiration was he had a family emergency or with his daughter and, and he was getting instructions over the phone from a person in a control room until the ambulance could arrive. And he just thought this, like that was the kernel of the idea of, yeah, what actually happens in a control room, but also data. And then been, there'd been an, an issue in England where someone had been charged with data data fraud. So someone was using, someone was working inside a triple O control room in the UK and they were basically selling the addresses of the people because you'd often someone would ring and they'd be, you'd send an ambulance to their house. So you knew where they lived, who they were, and there was some data fraud happening. So you kind of took that inspiration of like, what happens if there's corruption of transfer of information that happens in this quite extreme thing? And then he'd had had this experience with his sick child. So it's kind of, yeah, really cool genesis to set a crime. Like who would have ever connected it yeah. that way? And that I think that's well, where the sophistication of it and the uniqueness of it really comes through, doesn't it? Yeah. Well, the, the closest that my life's ever got to the control room was that um, I once had a friend deliver me Uber Eats. Then we didn't realize until, until he got to the door. So Maybe there's a drama. In what that. he was the driver, it's, it's, he was the delivery. Yeah, yeah, he was the delivery guy. <laughs> but obviously, much lower stakes than the control room. So yeah, as we mentioned, the control room is a tight three episode commitment, and all three episodes of the control room are streaming for you right now on binge. Who was it, Gabriel? No idea. Do you remember? Well, she knows you. I didn't know else to go. What's going on? I have no idea who these people are. Dead man, Gabriel. Whatever you go, I'll find you. What would you do for me, Gable? John, we're at the final part of our podcast where we talk about the shows that we recommend to the people that we love and know, normally, hopefully, over dinner uh, rather than over Zoom. Um, you know the binge library and the lineup and the catalogue better than anybody. What is your binge dinner party recommendation this week? Well, I did mention this show like super briefly last week that it was something that I was working my way through. Um, and I have just unfortunately come to an end with it, but that is Veep. Yeah, oh, Veep. And welcome Vice President Selena Meyer. Politics is about people. Politics is about people. I've met some people, okay, real people. And I got to tell you, a lot of them are idiots. 
a couple of weeks ago, I was working my way through Avenue five because uh, new season is coming up. And then I, Loved Avenue 5 so much, it reminded me of how much I loved vape. And there is tons of vape. So that has thankfully filled a few weeks of my life. But I just absolutely loved it on a revisit to be surrounded by Selena Meyer and her terrible presidency and her terrible <laughs> colleagues and supporters. And I, I think we've said this in the past, but like I... I, like a lot of people, I think need a, like a sitcom or a comedy in their life just to watch before bed or whatever they're doing. And Veep had filled that hole beautifully over the last few weeks. And if you've seen it, it is very rewatchable. Um, and if you haven't seen it, my God, like go and go and watch Veep. It's fantastic. Capital and Narcissist with a big dose of humor. It's, it's fabulous, isn't it? Yeah. And it's, um, you know, it's like pre-Trumpian. Um, and I think I remember when, I think I remember thinking when Trump got elected, oh, you know, Veep wouldn't work now because it was so, you know. Close was, to the truth. It was so, so true. <laughs> but, but watching it, you're, you're just like, it absolutely still works because it does speak to this like truth of how insane politics are. So no matter how insane politics have gotten, it still speaks to this idea of politics just being this insane like boiler room of personalities and narcissism and craziness. And then this like slither of people still trying to do good in the world. And yeah, I just love it. Can't recommend it enough. And there's, I think seven, seven or eight seasons. Tony Hale is the sort of fantastic assistant to Julia Louis-Dreyfus's Selena Meyer. And yeah, it stands up brilliantly um, from, from Armando Iannucci, who did Avenue five, but is also very well known for the thick of it and a number of other things. So yeah, if you need a, if you need a new, new ish old sitcom in your life, um, check out Veep. There's a reason some have called it one of the best, yeah, the best comedies of all time from, yeah. from HBO. Julia Louis-Dreyfus and the show won any number of Emmys over its run and, yeah, it's absolutely fantastic. That's how I got into it actually years ago because, you know, when you watch, well, for those that watch the Emmy Awards, uh, you kind of like, what is this show that keeps winning? I've, I know sometimes you just miss something and it just kept won every year. Every year it was winning, wasn't it, for like five or six years in a row and it's um, definitely worth a watch. And it's funny, I've had quite a few people say to me the same about White Lotus. They're like, I kept hearing about this White Lotus thing, but after watching the Emmy Awards and hearing it when all these things they're like okay i'm finally giving um this a, a go so if veep's one of those shows that you've heard about but you've never got into we recommend you do what about you ali well i'm going for a different kind of theatrical spectacle we've gone from the you know spectacle of politics to a different kind of smackdown and this week we had a really big announcement at binge which is that we are going to be becoming the home of WWE. That's right, the wrestling um, from early next year because WWE fans might know that there's a dedicated WWE subscription service and app and that's going to be closing down in Australia and everything that's on that app will be coming to binge from January, including all the big traditional pay-per-view kind of fights that you see, the big battle royales and the, and the Royal Rumbles from January. But people might not realise, so this is this is my call out, that we already have a lot of the WWE wrestling on binge. So the weekly um, matches, you've got WWE Raw, you've got WWE SmackDown, WWE NXT. Um, every week, hours of those 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 wrestling matchups coming to binge and kind of fast track from the US. And so 
my call out here is don't wait till January um, when we will be getting even more, but there's already great wrestling and we've got heaps of wrestling fans already on binge, but it's kind of like a soap opera. There's all these different wrestlers. They have these huge personas and these bigger than um, Ben Hur egos and kind of characters almost. And they cross into the different competitions and, you know, they move in and out of the weekly soap opera that happens inside the ring. So I'm calling out WWE. Are you much of a wrestling fan, John Bowen? Uh, well, I, I think I think a lot of people grew up watching WWE on Foxtel in like the 90s, like I did. Uh, my dad still watches, but I think every episode that ever goes out. So I know he's very excited. Um, <laughs> but I will say, like, again, I, we throw around soap opera, I, I think, like mildly, like, jokingly, but Real Housewives of Beverly Hills is a soap opera. WWE is a soap opera. House of the Dragons is a soap opera. These are all good things. And what people love about Real Housewives of Beverly Hills, the way it crosses over into social media and the real world, same with WWE. Like these are real characters and real people that you can follow. And then they have these amazing like four or five times a year, like season finales almost where- Crossover events. Yeah, where they have these yeah. massive crossover <laughs> events where they take over whole stadiums. And um, it's really exciting that obviously, like you said, we're now going to get those that used to be pay-per-view and it's all just going to be part of your binge subscription. So, I know. So yeah. we always talk about the world's best shows and having these, you know, brilliantly award-winning and premium series and the shows that everyone's talking about. But I just feel like the WWE joins the general entertainment and so much of the other stuff that's on binge um, that once you get past those, those big premiere kind of shows, you just see the range that's there. So based on the response we've had since we've announced and all the fans in Oz, I think it's going to be really fun next year when, um, yeah, when we really kick off the partnership. So here we go. Let's get ready to rumble. Uh, let's get ready to This week on Skip Intro, we discussed episode seven of House of the Dragon, the new BBC thriller, The Control Room. I recommended that you check out Veep, and Ali reminded us all about the very exciting news around the WWE coming to binge early next year. All of these are streaming for you right now on binge, which of course you can find on your favorite device. I'm John Bohm, joined every week by Ali Herbert Burns. Thank you so much for listening. This podcast is produced by Dan Barrett with audio editing and mixing by Chris Yates. And we'll be back next week with more House of the Dragon and more recommendations. Mm-hmm.